You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Genesis chapter 1. The very first uh, pages of the, the text of Scripture. Genesis 1, verse 1. Um, we're going to look at this text all today. And so if you open it up to Genesis 1-1, you could kind of leave it open there for all of the Mill Sunday School because we're going to look at this passage. And so I would, I would encourage you, like I usually do, to open up your Bibles, but more than, more than usual because we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 for a lot of the time. And Genesis 1 says this. Many of you, of course, already know this passage. It's the opening words of the Bible, and it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 3, God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. We're going to look at this scripture as well as the rest of Genesis 1 in, in full context. Um, so let's, let's open by praying and thanking him for being here. God, we do love you. We praise you so much. And we thank you for this text of scripture that is true, that, that, that shows that you created and how awesome and holy you are, how you are the center of the universe, that you just spoke and then there was. And so God, we, we lift you up to your place. You are God. We are not. We, we worship you. We praise you as almighty, all-powerful creator God. We love you, Jesus. And everybody screamed. Amen. All right. Well, over Thanksgiving, anybody uh, hang out with their parents over Thanksgiving? Yeah, me too. It's pretty cool. Uh, I, I was looking through boxes of old stuff, and I found an old fourth grade report that I did. Uh, it's, it's called an immigration report where we would just talk about family history and, and it's my family tree. And I wrote about some stories. I got a 95 on it and I turned it in early. So I did really good because I was a really good student back then. And, uh, and in it, I, I drew my, my family crest. And so I scanned it in. Hopefully you could kind of see it. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful drawing of, uh, by a fourth grader of the Graham family crest, which is my mom's maiden name. Um, and so it is... Um, so that's the crest. And I remember doing this report in, in uh, fourth grade and calling up grandma and aunts and um, my mom and trying to put together stories and the family tree. And it was just a cool experience of doing that. And some of the stories that kind of remain are just like the crazy stories that get passed on. Have you ever noticed that? Like, yes, grandma, like, grandma, tell me some stories about when you're growing up. She'll tell you, like, the craziest stories in the world. Like, one time my great-grandmother um, thought a dog was attacking the, the chickens and the chicken coop, and so she went out there with a broom to, like, scare this dog away. Turns out, not a dog, but a cougar that turns around and attacks my great-grandma and, uh, like, bites her and cuts her open, and no one else was around, so she had to sew up herself by herself. <laughs> Like, what the heck? How does that? Like, that story is just, that's just a cool story. And it's like crazy stories like that. Crazy stories like uh, my great-grandfather had some land, and these other cowboys tried to chase him off his land and, and kill him. And they chased him on horseback to some train tracks, and he tried to cross the train tracks but didn't make it. And my great-grandfather was killed, but we kept the land. And then so it's like these stories that survive in family history or other stories that are like pattern-changing stories, such as stories about like 
when we moved, uh, when we immigrated to the new world, the United States, from Europe, or when we moved uh, from the East Coast out, and my, my mom's family's from Texas, and stories like that that get passed on, and then the family t- trees, the genealogies. Maybe some of you know where I'm going with this, because the book of Genesis, all 50 chapters, if you look at it as a whole, it's like one big family history report. All the genealogies that many times, and I, I being included, would just skip over. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. You don't even know these names, but to the ancient world, these were very important names and very important stories of how the Israelites, how this Jewish nation came to be. It's like their fourth grade history uh, genealogy immigration report comparing it to my own, and my own is like three pages, and Genesis is 50. But it's it's like the story of where they came from. And of course, Genesis is much more than that, because it's also God's story, and God working throughout the people that were on the earth, and and tracing their history all the way back. Like if if some of us were like, man, how far can you trace your history back? You're like, all the way back. And you're like, oh, sweet. So like, to when your family immigrated over, sweet. And like my wife's family, Erica can trace her family all the way back to uh, the Mayflower, which is pretty cool. Um, but like Genesis traces their family history like all the way back. Like to the Mayflower? No, like all the way back. Like to Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1, where God created humans. And so here's the story of humanity and humanity messing up. And then God redeeming humanity. And that is what I see in the book of Genesis, this big story of, of this family history, if you look at it as a whole. And so we're going to look at Genesis 1 today and parts of 2. But I, I just wanted to open up with that idea that the whole context of Genesis isn't just about chapters 1 and 2. And the whole context of Genesis in this whole ancient book of the Old Testament isn't about this debate between evolution and creation, although that is what we are talking about, have been talking about all this month. Today is lesson four of four, the, the, the last and final lesson of our evolution creation talk. Many of you, uh, I guess not many of you, but many Sunday schoolers emailed me this week and said, hey, I'm not going to be there. I'm doing family stuff or I'm out of town. Make sure you podcast it. So we will podcast it. What's up, everybody listening via podcast? That's that's them listening Um, in the future, I guess. So, uh, yeah, announcements. Let's make a few announcements and then get rolling because there's, there's, I think, a lot to talk about with with looking at this context of Genesis. If you're new to Sunday school, and I do see a lot of new faces, you could fill out this. It's a little card, a get-to-know-you, welcome visitor card. It says get schooled on it. If you fill it out with as much or little information as you want, you could give it to the people in the lobby as you leave behind the black curtain, and they'll give you a, uh, I think they still give you a CD of worship music from the mill on Friday night, and um, that's our main meeting of college and 20-somethings here at New Life Church, and so, yeah, that's that. Um, Other announcements? Um, Yeah, next month, we always take Sunday schools via month, by by months and new topics per month. And, and so next month is Christology, study of Jesus. Any, any Jesus fans in here? <laughs> yeah, me too. And so, uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say something kind of important, that, that all this month, and including today, 
We're, we're looking at this maybe debate between evolution and creation, and talking about within the church, old earth and new earth and how God created. And it's very, like last week we even had kind of people just giving their, their opinions of, of how and why it all happened. And, and there was kind of a debate, even though there wasn't, you know, we didn't try to make it a debate. And it's, it's just ideas that, you know, we can't nail down and say, here it is, this is the way it is. And so maybe even after today, just as a warning and a preface to this lesson, you might leave here just as confused as when the month started about this whole evolution creation thing. And um, I apologize about that in some ways, but in other ways, it's just that that's what it is. That's the nature of the topic. Whereas next month, we'll be talking about Jesus, who he is. <clears throat> we'll be talking about, here's what we all believe as Christians about Jesus. This is what has been set before us. This is what we believe. And there won't be this confusion and debate and weird stuff. Sound fun? Okay, but f- t- today... Um, weird, fun, confusion stuff. Review. We have to say this every time, that we are creationists. We've said it four times, four lessons now, that, that we are creationists. We believe that God created. And then there's this dialogue that we have within the church, uh, within the context of Christianity, of how did God create it? Is the old earth really old? Did he somehow use the processes of evolution or create over time? Is it a day-age theory? Or is it a six literal days that you, that you have to believe in? And, and so we raised our hand, I think, on the first Sunday or the second Sunday. How many of you are young earthers? How many of you are old earthers? And it was kind of split amongst Sunday school as to where people were coming from. But as a point of review, we are all creationists. Then there is debate within the church over how he created. And I thought of this analogy, and it's not my analogy. Uh, Aaron Stern told me this. We were, Aaron Stern and I were in a meeting, and, and he, just him and I, and we were talking. We were kind of getting philosophical about college ministry and, and what's going on in the lives of college students. And he talked about this analogy of a river. And on one bank of the river, you know, if you're a Christian, you grew up Christian, you come from a modern kind of uh, side of this river. And your, your parents taught you that, you know, this, this worldview, it goes along with Christianity, that there is truth, and the tr- truth is knowable, and truth is not relative. And, and in this stream, you can see this island of post-modernity is this island that, that sometimes you kind of have to go close to or near or around during your college years and you take philosophy classes or even English classes or ethics classes or science classes and you hear postmodern ideas like maybe truth is relative, that whatever's true for you, that's cool, it's true for you. If you're a Christian, that's cool, that's true for you. If you're a Buddhist, that's cool, that's true for you. And, and truth is relative. And so you may, as a college student or someone in your 20s, leave the modernity shore and be tossed about in this river somewhere in between modernity and post-modernity, these two worldviews that are conflicting. One says, modernity says, truth is knowable, there is truth, it's black and white, it's either right or wrong, it's either good or evil. And you can know all that. And post-modernity says, oh, there is no truth. There is no good and evil. There is no moral compass. It's all relative to who you are and where you are, etc. And so the, the post-modernity is obviously not good to Christianity. It's, it's against uh, what, what Christianity says, that you know, Jesus is true, that, that Buddha is not true. And that, that's, a, that's kind of a modern mindset. And so when, you're, when, when we are in our 20s being tossed about and maybe pulled towards post-modernity and modernity, I think sometimes there, there, there isn't realized that maybe modernity doesn't, maybe there's another side to this river. And, and just 
I guess just go with me on this analogy for a second. But if there's another side to this river, and I, I call it just a place to embrace mystery, that if somehow you can get around post-modernity, and post-modernity is not good as far as the Christian worldview goes. It's not good. It says that truth is relative, and we believe that there is truth. But the other side of the river would say there, there is truth, and, and that it's, some of it's knowable, and maybe some of it is just to be embraced as mystery, that, we, that on this side of heaven, that we're on earth now, that, that maybe in heaven we will, we will learn fully and, and know fully all the depths of the truth that we can know. But right now we're, we're in some ways, you know, we can't know it all, that all truth isn't knowable, and we should be okay with mystery and maybe poem and, uh, and maybe uh, um, the figurative language and, and parables and just this place where we don't have to line it all up and, and put it in a historical box or a literal box or a scientific box. It doesn't all have to line up like maybe some, some would argue from a modern mindset. Hopefully this, this image will help because we're about to dive into the context of Scripture and, and use some big words, these big words being hermeneutics and exegesis of the Bible. And big words are fun, don't you think? Girls love big words. Guys, if you learn big words, you'll be so cool. Girls will love you. So hermeneutics, exegesis, these two words mean um, kind of looking at the text of Scripture, studying it in such a way as to get background and, and what's it saying and then how to interpret it for today. And so we're going to do a lot of that today. And um, there's all kinds of uh, chapters in the Bible. I think there's like 1,800 something chapters in the Bible as a, as a whole, lots of different chapters. Some of those chapters would, at the top here, we have a literal, they would be literal, historical eyewitness accounts and testimony accounts. Some of those chapters would be figurative or metaphorical, uh, poetic, parable, theological narrative. And so we sometimes, I think I, I threw up this slide last time, want to say that, oh, the literal stuff, that's true. The historical, or the literal stuff, that's true. The, the figurative stuff, that's not true. And that's silly. That's not how we should think about it. We wouldn't open up the Psalms and say, oh, just because it's beautiful, poetic poetry, it's not true, right? No, we'd say, oh, the Psalms are true, just as, as much true as, you know, Jesus, the, res- the resurrection story at the end of like Luke or John, that Jesus died and then he was resurrected and people observed him and, and, and Thomas got to put his fingers in the nail holes. Like that's a literal story. That's a true story. But it's just as true, I guess, as the Psalms, even though it's a different type of genre, both are true. Or Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, that didn't really happen. It was a parable. But that doesn't make it not true. It's still true. And so, and so how do we go about um, thinking about this literal figurative uh, thing because I think our culture is fascinated with with literal and, and figurative. And say, in fact, I, I've often joked in the Mill Sunday School that we we just use the word literal as like this word to exaggerate our point. Like, man, I am literally so hungry that I could literally eat a horse. Like, have you stopped and thought about that? Like, that's a no, you couldn't. That's impossible. Your stomach can only hold like no, it's impossible. You can't literally eat a horse. And so I've. Anybody else fascinated by like the literal figure, how we use those words? I think it's so funny. I think it's so funny. I'm, I'm very immature, but that's who I am. And a couple weeks ago, uh, a, a pastor was preaching. Oh, one second. Got it. 
uh, a pastor was preaching at New Life Church. His first name may have been Brady. His last name may have been Boyd. I don't know. Um, and he was talking about how just, and this just shows my immaturity, by the way. And Brady was, uh, or this pastor was talking about uh, how he how he loves um, our city and how he has a heart for the the people that aren't saved. And he may or may not have said something like, "I am just so literally hungry for the lost people of our city." <laughs> And I, out of my immaturity, I just started giggling and laughing uncontrollably. And I looked at my wife, Erica, and she was laughing too because I was laughing. And then she said, I'm literally hungry for lost sheep. <laughs> it's just like, what's wrong with that? I'm just so immature. Um, but that's, that, that's what I am, I guess. And so there's passages, lots of them in the Bible, 1,800-something chapters of the Bible. Lots of them are different. Some of them are very literal. Some of them are very figurative. Um, and so there's, there's, and there's some that are maybe in between. And so I want to ask this question, what are the rules or ideas? And I'll kind of ask this as a discussion question in a second. But what are the rules, the ideas for determining if a passage should be taken literally for today. And so, you know, like the passage of Jesus re- resurrecting from the dead and showing his nail holes to Thomas, we would say, oh, that's historical, that's eyewitness count, that's literal. But maybe uh, Isaiah 40, where it talks about how God sits enthroned and we are grasshoppers on the face of the earth. It's like, oh, we're not literally grasshoppers. We're just kind of like grasshoppers because God is so big. That's figurative language. Or passages in the Old Testament that maybe should have been taken literally at the time, like uh, somewhere in, the, in the, uh, the, the Pentateuch is this law, and I tried to find it because it's kind of cool, but it says for fathers to stone to death their son if their son is given to laziness, right? And so I just imagine a, a son like sitting on the couch playing Halo, and dad comes in with like a bucket of rocks and kills him. It's like, dude, but no, you can't do that. And it's like, well, it says to do that. And it's like, well, maybe it was supposed to be taken literally at the time, but the, the, it's not supposed to be taken literally now. Um, um, or passages that maybe, maybe if, if you're a girl, this passage might be important to you. First uh, Corinthians 14 says, women must, be, must remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. First uh, Corinthians 14, 34. Do we take that literally? We don't. In the middle Sunday school, we allow girls to converse and chit-chat and discuss and even stand up. And, and, and when we do mic discussions and, and talk, we don't hold that literally. But maybe at the time, they did take that literally. And so why don't we take that literally? How, what are the rules? Here's the question. What are the rules or ideas for determining if a passage should be taken literally or not? Now, I want you to take, um, we, don't, we have, don't have too much time for discussion, but just take a minute, 60 seconds, to turn to some people around you um, or, or to join another table and, and listen to some of the ideas or rules about when do we take a passage literally or figurative. Cool? Ready? Get set? Go. Discuss. All right, I'm going to put some uh, words up here on the PowerPoint slides that maybe many of you uh, mentioned. How many of you mentioned context of the passage? Yes. How many of you mentioned uh, the his- how in history it was interpreted? How many of you mentioned genre? Anybody? Like what type of writing is it? Sweet. How many of you mentioned uh, the type of language? I guess that's kind of genre. How many of you mentioned the author audience kind of stuff? Like who it was intended to for and, and who wrote it? Um, those are important questions to ask when looking at a passage. That's just doing hermeneutics and exegesis. We don't take, even if you, you, know, you could say, oh, I take the Bible literally. 
Well, not all of it, because you're not stoning people, and you're not, um, uh, maybe if you've ever eaten bacon, you're not taking it literally. If you've uh, ever eaten shrimp, you're not taking it literally. It says not to do those things. If, you, if, you've ever, if you're a girl and you've ever talked inside the church building, you're not taking it literally. And so, but, <laughs> um, anyways, uh, this last point that's in double, uh, whatever those things are, print, that's not a print C. What is that? Semicolon what? Parenthesis? It is? What's this thing? Oh, that's a quote. Anyways, I'm getting really confused up here. Whenever I ask a question like that, I just hear like, <laughs> it just adds to the confusion. Anyways, uh, it says, whatever it's in, it says, read it, uh, read like an ancient person, then interpret it for today. And I think that's just kind of a, a good rule to think. It's like, how would a person reading this uh, in the context in which it was written, have interpreted it. Because so, so then you read it like that, and then you read it for today. I would say, oh, what's it mean for us then today? And so if you read, uh, like, the women be silent in the church passage, read it like an ancient person. And so you'd imagine yourself, oh, you, you had a church, you probably were separated, boys on one side, girls on the other. Unfortunately, uh, women back then were not educated at all, no schooling, none whatsoever. And so the men were, and, and so women be quiet in the church because you could ask your husband's questions at home. Don't, don't raise your hand and ask questions here because it's not an appropriate atmosphere for um, childlike questions, and it'd be childlike because women weren't educated. And so, oh, I get that, but our context is very different. And so women are very educated, They're usually smarter than men, actually. Uh, <laughs> and so, so our context is very different. So you look at it first as an ancient person, then say, how do I interpret it t- for today? Cool? Cool. Okay. So let's do that with the book of Genesis. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time doing today. So if you don't have the book of Genesis open, uh, open it up to Genesis chapter 1. There should be Bibles on the table. Uh, open it up. Because uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to put up the... There's so much text here. There is, uh, um, let's see, 31 verses here. And so I'm not going to put it up on the board. I'm just going to talk about it as if you're reading along. So, um, so you, you open it up, look at it, and let's, 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 let's see. I, I know that in, we just read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And many of us picture something like this, don't we? We picture a spherical ball. If you're listening by podcast, uh, a spherical ball is on the screen, and it is totally blue because God had not yet created um, land. And, and so we picture that, right? I picture that. You probably picture that when it's like, oh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's like, oh, okay, got it. Picture this ball of earth moving around a sun. You're like, okay, got it. Oh, actually, the sun's not created yet. So you just picture a ball of water uh, and earth underneath that water. Say, oh, that's cool. That's how we picture it as in 2010 because we know that the earth is round. We've sent spaceships up and taken pictures back. And we're like, oh, dude, sweet. It really is round. And so we, that's what we know. That's just what we have in our head whenever we picture the earth. But the ancient world did not picture a ball, did not picture an earth, a spherical earth. They would have just pictured from the first person place on earth looking out, they would have just pictured open water. A water covering the face of the earth. In fact, if, the, and we'll talk about this more, hopefully, if we have time, about where Genesis 1 came from, but um, it 
probably came from before Moses, before 1500 BC, and the earliest Western person to have guessed that the earth was spherical was a dude named Pythagoras, who had Pythagorean theorems that you had to learn, trigonometry, uh, right, and algebra. And, and so he lived in about 500 BC, and he was the first, at least given credit, as the first to, to have this idea that the earth is spherical. And so if you're reading the context of this book and you're in the ancient world, you imagine, when you read this, you just imagined earth from the first person, like, tons of ocean. No land yet, just water and God hovering over the water, and so maybe big waves. And so that's day zero. God formed, uh, created the heavens and the earth, and it was formless and void, and water covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. That's, that's kind of the ancient world. You picture a, just earth. You picture a flat earth because no one yet had told you that the earth is spherical. Cool? Are you, are you going along with it? So we're reading it now like an ancient person. And then from there, we'll go to what's it mean for today. But um, I, I think it's just like any other biblical passage. We ask the question, how, how, would, th- how would this have been uh, originally interpreted from the audience? And then on day one, God said, let there be light, which is the sweet quote of the day. We always have a sweet quote on the back of your notes. And today it just says, let there be light, period, God which is just this awesome statement that God just said, let there be, and then there was. It's awesome that he is the awesome creator um, above all. And so sometimes we picture maybe this picture, which is pretty cool. I'd like to get a poster of that, put it at my house. That'd be sweet. Uh, it's a picture, if you're listening via podcast, it's Jesus with a, a ball of light in his hand uh, over uh, in front of a spherical earth. And we, of course, picture that because there's passages in the New Testament that say uh, that God is light. And there's passages where Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. And so we picture, oh, um, we picture that this is a spiritual thing, that God created light and, and that he is the light and he goes out and shines forth. Um, the problem with that in an ancient world, if we're, if we're actually in the ancient context and we don't yet have the New Testament, is that we are just reading this and we're probably reading along thinking, oh, these are physical descriptions of what's going on. And of course, we in 2010 uh, have passed the Copernican Revolution. Galileo came along. Telescopes have come along. We landed a man on the moon. We know that the Earth's orbit is elliptical and the sun is at one of the foci and we are going around really fast around the sun, and the sun is an average of about 92 million miles away. And so we would ask the question, well, how can there be light without the sun, right? Don't you think that immediately? Like all the, all the light that comes to the earth, the energy via sunlight, the light, the, the seasons change because the sun, I think it's like right over there right now. We can't see it because it's blacked out because we need to see these screens. But anyways, um, uh, so we picture, we just read this as a, uh, t- in 2010, having the New Testament, and we'd say, oh, this is about uh, God just spiritually creating light, and he himself was the light. But I think an ancient person would, would have just thought, oh, this is just a day one. He physically created the light. And, and then there was day, and then there was night, the, the first day. And, and it's, you know, we have this context of the, the earth is revolving around the sun, and then the, the sun, the, the earth is spinning as it's revolving around the, this elliptical orbit, and that's what causes day and night. But I think in the ancient world, they didn't know that yet. I mean, this is post-Copernican Revolution, Galileo, and the Middle Ages and such. And so I think it's just this description of, you know, like an overcast day. You can't see the sun. There's still light, and there's still night, even though, the, even though you can't see the sun. 
And so I think it's more of this ancient description of just, oh, there's, there's day and night, and, and we'll get into this later about in the fourth day, he creates the, the sun, moon, and stars to govern the sky. And that, that in the, the ancient worldview, uh, all light shedding onto the earth didn't come necessarily from the sun. There just was light and day. Does that make sense? So once again, we're reading it as an ancient person would, and, and later on in this lesson, we'll say, okay, what's it mean for us today? So are you ready for day two? Day two, God spends an entire day creating something called the expanse or the sky or the firmament or the dome or uh, in, in Hebrew, the, the word is rakia. And so, of course, once again, we picture an earth ball of dirt, water over it because land isn't yet formed, and we picture a sky, an expanse. And then above this sky, we'll talk about this a little later, that there was water above the sky and, and which is just a really interesting thing. It's like, well, how would the ancient person have, have uh, pictured this? They, of course, wouldn't have pictured the earth as a ball or a sphere or uh, whatever, uh, round. They would have pictured probably a flat earth. And this is actually, hopefully, a, you could kind of see this up, up there on the board or the, the, the front cover of the, your notes has this Jewish understanding of, of what the world looked like. Of course, a flat earth because... On, um, no one told them that the earth was spherical yet. They didn't land a man on the moon and take a picture back at earth yet. And so the, the ancient world is like a flat earth. And there, there's this idea of like pillars held up the sky. And they might have been ice or stone or whatever. But it was like this solid thing above the sky. And up there was water, which isn't too crazy to think about. You know, if, you, if you've never seen the earth as a sphere and you're an ancient person, just, you know, doing your farming and hanging out, um, not playing Halo and just like, Whatever ancient people do back then, there's no magazines, no cell phones. Oh, what do you do back then? Raise bunnies or something? I don't know. Anyways, you look up in the sky and you see that it's blue, and you're like, oh, of course water's up there. It's, it's blue, duh. I mean, duh. What, what do you think's up there, stupid head? Um, and so the, the, this ancient worldview is there's waters, there's this dome and, and of, of like air, and I don't even know that they knew that there was air, and this, air, this space, and then above the space is water, like actual waters, and then we learn later that the water, the floodgates of this water open up and pour down during the flood. So that's day two. Everybody cool? So we're, we're still, once again, reading it as an ancient person would. Day three, he uh, forms dry land, and on the dry land, uh, vegetation uh, is produced seed-bearing plants and plants and land and of all kinds. And the land produced vegetation. And the, land, the, the vegetation came up. And so here's a picture of just land forming some islands. And, and what's interesting about this, anybody ever wonder why uh, the, the uh, plants are created before the sun? Anybody else wonder that? I've wondered that and thought, you know, my understanding, as I've told you before in Sunday school, that I... Uh, studied biology in college. I took monocot, botany, dicot, botany, um, regular intro to botany, which is all the study of plants. And I know the, the photosynthesis that, that, you know, I could probably write it out even to this day, you know, C6H12O6, you know, that's glucose. You need, you need light and you need oxygen, water. Uh, and, and you get, you know, the, this process of photosynthesis, you need light for it all to happen, sunlight for it all to happen, or it doesn't happen. But the photosynthesis is a very modern, you know, it's like 1800s people started putting together the, this, this theory of, of how plants did their thing. It's a very new, you know, theory. And so in the ancient world, you put a seed in the ground and the seed came up. 
that the land itself produced plants. And so in this ancient world, no one would have asked, why, why are the plants coming up before the sun came up? No one would have asked that because they would have just thought that this ancient worldview is like, oh, plants come from the dirt. That's where they come from. And if you were to look at it and not have no knowledge of photosynthesis, you would just say, yeah, put the seed in the dirt and then the seed grows and comes up out of the dirt. Duh, stupid head. Where else do you think it comes from? He's like, well, we'll learn later about this process of photosynthesis and how that has to happen. You could actually grow a plant without dirt if it has some nutrients in it. And you just need the light, which is pretty cool. So, so, so once again, we're reading this as an ancient person would, and they wouldn't have any problem with, oh, light being created on the, on the first day and plants being created before the sun. Because here is day four. Day four, uh, this, this old picture of a sun, the moon, and the stars. And, and this is the fourth day. It says, let, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate them from night and let them serve as signs to uh, mark the seasons, days, and years. So that's their purpose. The sun, the moon, the stars is to, is to mark the seasons and days. Um, in this context and in the ancient world, you, you, not all light came from, you wouldn't think all light came from the sun. You'd say, oh, at nighttime there's a moon and that must itself be a light. That's just how ancient people thought. They didn't know that the earth was traveling around uh, the sun in an elliptical orbit, and it's the, actually the sun shining on this moon, and the moon is just a reflection of the sun's light. We know that, right? We know that, yeah, but the ancient people, they didn't know that. The ancient concept is, dude, there's a light in the sky. It must just be a light in and of itself. Duh. In fact, the Bible says it. It says a light in the sky. But the ancient world, the, the, the we are a very, our cosmology is very different than the ancient cosmology. And what I'm about to say is a very hard uh, jump a very hard, I guess, space to jump or a very hard um, thing to swallow and to see if you've never seen it before. And many of you, like we, we did the vote a couple of weeks ago, raised your hand. You said, oh, I'm, I'm a six-day literal creationist. And maybe what I'm about to show you will um, in some ways just be like, man, what in the world? Yeah, where does that come from? If you really take this text literal, if you say, I believe that it's literally, God literally created in six literal days, then what did he create? And if you look at here at day four and say, what did God create? How did he create it? You see that something very interesting is, is about to um, be explained, very different than what we know now. And I'll preface this with um, the, the book of Genesis, chapter one. It's true that, that God is God uh, and God is different. And this story is so different than any other ancient book the ancient books, the ancient creation stories of the Babylonians, the Samaritans, even the Greeks and the Romans, all had various forces acting on the earth, like spring battling winter, personified, evil battling good, personified, and, and bad days and good days happening because there's different forces going on. But the Bible, the context of Genesis, is in the beginning, God. He's the only force. He created it all. And, and so in an ancient world explanation, um, there, there, there's God and God alone, that's, and he created, and we could explain everything because he created it. And so here's the thing that I was about to share before prefacing it with how, how much I love and appreciate uh, the book of Genesis, even though uh, I think I, I shared last time how I, I, I think it's more figurative than literal, but we'll get to that. And I, my point is not to convert you from a, from a literal to figurative today, but just to, to read the text from an ancient point of view to do good hermeneutics and exegetes. So, with all that preface, <clears throat> it says twice 
that the lights in the sky, it says twice, excuse me, that, the, that let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day and night. And then, and there's, okay, I got that. And it says sun and moon, uh, and then the stars, verse 17, and God set them in the expanse of the sky to give the light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, to, to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was morning, there was evening, the fourth day. Now, what's interesting about this passage is, is it's earth. It, maybe you could kind of see this. This is the same drawing that's on the front page of your, of your notes. It's the earth where we live. And up above that is the expanse, the sky. And, and how do we know that? Well, it says that he created that on the second day, the expanse of the sky. And then above the expanse, above the sky, is water. And, and where are the sun, moon, and the stars? Well, literally, from this context, it says that they are literally in the expanse of the sky, which is below these waters. And I don't know of anyone that's ever explained it this way, but it's like, if you really think about that, you're like, okay, sweet. I, I know that the, the sun is 93 million miles away on average because it's elliptical orbit and the sun's at one of the foci. So it's 93 million miles away from the earth. So you're telling me that, that the earth is here, the sun is 93 miles away, and that before the flood, there was water on the other side of the sun? What? And then you get into like, wait, there's stars that are like four point something uh, um, light years away. So you're saying that the, the sun, the moon, the stars were in the sky and that there was water on the other side of these stars that were four point something light years away? I don't know of anyone, I know of lots of people that say, I believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 that God created in six literal days, but I don't know of anyone that says, I actually literally believe that God literally put the, the sun, moon, and the stars in the sky and, light, and, and water was on the other side of the sun, moon, and the stars. And maybe you believe that, and so come talk to me later, then I'll be like, oh, I know this one guy or this one girl that believes that. But everyone I know always says, it's the earth and then sky, and then water that, that was there and, and to, up until the flood, and then the sun, moon, and the stars. And then there's theories of creationism like, oh, the sun's lights uh, couldn't reach the earth directly because of that water vapor uh, barrier, and that's why the oxygen content was higher, and people lived longer, there was less cancer, blah, 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 on and on and on. But if you read the context, it's like literally, that's not a literal interpretation of what is going on here. The literal interpretation is it's the earth, then the sky, and in the sky are the sun, moon, and the stars, and on the outside of the sun, moon, and the stars is, is or was water. What? <laughs> like that, that has no place in our cosmology, knowing that we've landed a man on the moon and, and looked out and, and not seen uh, water gates where water came in during the flood. It's like, it's just different. And so if we're reading this as an ancient, we have problems as in 2010, with a scientific, modern worldview where we want things to be literal and historical, we have problems looking at this text saying, that doesn't make any sense. But in the ancient world, this text was just like, duh, look up, it's blue, there's water up there. Well, well God traded that. And, and, and duh, the, the sun, moon, and the sky, the sun, moon, and the stars, of course they're in the sky. Where do you think they are, stupid? They're just right there. Of course they're in the sky. What's wrong with you? God created those. And so it's the story, and I would say, and it's, it's my opinion, of course, that, that I get to have an opinion, but it's, it's, this is a figurative story for an ancient context of, of explaining how the world 
started and how God is central to this universe and how awesome He is and how He put everything in place and how He is God and we are not. Day five, the fish. (laughs) He, He said, let the waters teem with a bunch of fish. Like, look at all those fish. And he also said on day five, let the birds, what did he say about the birds? Uh, let the birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. And so there's all the birds flying around. And then uh, on the sixth day, he said, uh, let, let the, what does he say? The, 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 the beasts of the fields and the animals, uh, the livestock, all the things that uh, crawl around and stuff, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals. So that's all the wild animals and stuff. And then also on the sixth day, which kind of puts us in our place, because here we are as humans, and, and God created us also on the sixth day. That's Adam and Eve. And this was the only, I, I looked for quite a while for a picture of Adam and Eve that weren't like blatantly nude. Um, this was the only picture I could find. But that was kind of the point, that, that Adam and Eve were created nude without sin, and that's, that's who, where they are, uh, hiding behind a bush. Anyways, and then day seven, what happened on day seven? God rested. So I found this painting of God resting. And this is the idea that God made it complete. That this, it says uh, God completed in their vast, compl- everything in creation was completed in their vast array. God was done creating. Then he rests and uh, God calls it all good. And, and there, there he is resting. And some, even some, uh, I guess, sort of ancient or early church people thought that this, this, chapter of Genesis was more figurative than literal because like Augustine who lived in uh, the 4th century AD, the the 300s, 400s AD, said uh, God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Why would he need to rest? Of course, this this passage is just figurative. He didn't need to rest. Or this idea, according to Augustine, he said God didn't create in seven days. He just created in a second and it was all there He's all-powerful. Why would he need seven days to do or six days to do it and then to rest? No, this is more of a story for us to get our mind around the different things that, that God created. And so here's Augustine, you know, way before science and evolution and the, the Copernican revolution and the, the, the heliocentric model of the universe. Here's someone saying that, oh, from the context of this passage, it may be literal because why would God need to actually rest? And why, why would he need six days to create it on when he could just snap his finger, or even do less than that? He could just say it and it all would be. And so here we are, once again, still reading as an ancient uh, a person. And we look at Genesis 1 in its totality, and then we get to Genesis chapter 2. And so Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Genesis 2 starts off with, um, well, the, the, the actual the passage, I think, starts in Genesis 2 verse 4 where it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth i think i mentioned last time that 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 phrase is a phrase that happens 10 times in in the book of genesis and and that um and that it's ways of breaking up the story but of course genesis 1 doesn't begin with this is the account it just begins the god created the heavens and the earth and so last time i may have said that lots of um uh hermeneutical and exegesis research has said well, maybe Genesis 1 was like kind of a preamble to the rest of this, this whole story of, of all 50 chapters of Genesis. Maybe, maybe not, who knows. But here's what we do have, um, and I think this will make sense to you, that there's, there's a difference in the language of Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, it's God. God this, 
God that. God called it good. God said this. God uh, said, let there be light. God did this. He said that. And, and so God, it's God, God, God. And the word is Elohim. The, at the top is the Hebrew. You, you read from right to left. You read it backwards. Elohim, that's the Hebrew letters for Elohim. So it's God, God, God. And then you, as soon as you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they're created. And then it begins, Lord God. And then chapter 2 is very consistent with Lord God. Lord God did this. Lord God took the man. Lord God formed the man. Lord God um, said. Lord God did all these things. Lord God versus God. These two different names for God. And we know, having Exodus chapter 3, that we get the word Lord God, or this word Yahweh, from God himself. Moses at the burning bush, many, many pages later, in Exodus chapter 3, we, we find Moses at the burning bush. He asks God, what is your name that I might tell them? Who sent you? And God says, I am that I am. And that, that's the Hebrew verb of being Yahweh. He just said Yahweh. That's what you're to say when they ask you, who sent you? Yahweh. I am. I'm the one who sent you. In fact, anytime you see, maybe some of you don't know this, anytime in the Old Testament you see L-O-R-D, Lord, all caps, that's the word being used. It's Yahweh compared to Elohim or maybe there's a few other names for God as well. But so And so, all that to say that Genesis 2 was probably a later account. Since, I mean, just logically thinking, it's like if Moses did compile this text, which Moses is often given a lot of credit for writing most of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, however, not all of them, because he writes about his own death and, and, and how Joshua begins to take over. I don't think so. Someone else wrote that. So, Moses was more of a compiler of, of these chapters of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if the Lord God, Yahweh, didn't give that name to Moses until Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, how could that be here in Genesis chapter 2? Well, it's obvious. It, can't, it was written later, and potentially later than Genesis chapter 1, because Genesis chapter 1 uses Elohim, a much older name for God, pre-dating Moses and the burning bush. So here we have uh, maybe in some ways, two different creation accounts, one right after another. And I think that becomes fairly obvious as soon as you start reading, because Genesis 2-4 says, no shrub or plant had yet come up. What? We just read in Genesis 1, verse 11, that the ground produced vegetation. And then Genesis 2-4 says, when, when, when the Lord God made the earth, the heavens, no shrub of the earth or of the field, uh, um, or no plant had yet sprung up. Well, we just read that it did. And so the, here's two creation stories that, that seem to have some differences. Or uh, Genesis 2 um, gets, gets into verse 20, where, where it says that uh, God made all the animals, and then he brought them to, to Adam. So this, this, I imagine, from the context of Genesis 1, on the sixth day, God creates Adam, and it says in verse 20, uh, Genesis 2, verse 20, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And, and we know today that if Adam really did name all the birds, all the animals, that's a lot of naming. And if he did that, you know, the Genesis 1 account says, he, if you literally take it as literal, that, he, that, that, that all happened in one day. God created all the animals, 
And then he created female on the same day. He created them and with the image of God. He created them. Oh, that's Genesis 1. But Genesis 2 account says he created all the animals and then he brought all the animals to Adam and Adam named them all and no suitable partner was found. And that to me, it's like maybe some time passed. Maybe it wasn't literally, didn't literally all happen on a 24-hour day because it takes a lot of time to name all the animals and birds. There's 10,000 species of birds, 190 known to be extinct, so there was probably a lot more many years ago. And uh, the number of, of animals, there's like 1.5 million species of named animals that we have now uh, named. And if you're going to name 1.5 million species of animals, I mean, this is us like scientifically looking at this text with, a, with our 2010 mindset. It's like we know that there's 1.5 million species of animals. And if Adam was to name every single one, just giving like one second per name, like hippo, zebra, cow, sparrow, orangutan, goat, sheep. And it's just like one second per name, per animal, 1.5 million. That is uh, uh, 416.7 hours. That's a total of 17 plus days. So it's hard to just say, oh, I literally take the Bible. I, I take it all literally. Well, he literally named all the animals in, in a 24-hour period, even though one second per name takes 17 days. It's like, well, not literally. He probably didn't name all the animals. And it's like, well, did he do that all on the... Which one's literal? Did he not do it all in one day? Or did he do it all in one day? Because it says in Genesis 1 that he created them, male and female, on the same day, the sixth day. Which one's literal? It's like, well, come on. Just, you know, this is a story about man and woman being perfectly matched for each other, and no other creature could ever accompany a, a, a male and a female, a human like the male and female human. That's th- this is like a love story, a romantic, awesome, powerful love story of the the relationship between a man and a woman. Stop like trying to throw your science and your modern mindset into this text. Is is kind of what I don't know. I would say like lighten up, man. Like it doesn't have to be all literal for it to all be true. Is anybody following me here? Okay, I got one more analogy, and, and that, that'll close for today. It's a love story for the girls, I guess. Um, imagine a couple getting engaged. And, and guys, if you're about to get engaged, uh, do it in a nice way. And, and, and don't just like burp and, and then say, you want to get hitched? Um, and the reason why, and it sounds like a good idea, like, oh, we just, you know, just, just ask her if we want to get hitched and burp and whatever and then she'll like that she won't really like that and here's the problem with that is that as soon as you get engaged you're like oh you're engaged everyone will ask the girl how did he propose and so the story of how you got engaged will be retold like probably a million times figuratively uh before you actually get married and so and so you you need a nice story um that's just a piece of advice for all the guys anyways so imagine a couple getting engaged and the couple is getting engaged. Um, they're, they're at a beautiful beach or something. There's a sunset. The guy uh, pulls out a, a box that has a ring in it. He gets down on one knee, and he has a poem. And he starts reading this poem to this girl. And it's obvious what's about to happen. He's about to ask her to marry uh, him. And so he starts reading this poem. It just bear with me. Poem might say something like, from the night we first met eyes, we met them under the starry skies. I counted, and she's like, whoa, wait, what did you just say? You just said, 
from the night we met eyes, we met them under the starry skies. No, 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 no. That's not how it literally happened. We literally met in Mrs. Billings' uh, second period accounting class 101. You turned around and asked me if I had the textbook for this class, and I said no. That's when we first met eyes, literally. It's like, baby, come on. I'm trying to, trying to propose here. Let me, let me finish the poem. And so he, he pulls back out the poem, pulls the ring out, and, and continues, From the night we first met eyes, we met them under the starry skies. I counted every one and wished that we could spend a day for every star in the sky. And I pray that... Oh, she's like, wait, no, 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 no. Hold on just a minute. You just said that you counted every star in the sky. First of all, that's impossible because they're still counting the scar, stars in the skies. The Tycho 2 space research list counts 2,539,913 stars, and they're still counting stars. So obviously you didn't count all the stars in the sky with a telescope. So I'm imagining that you counted all the stars in the sky with the naked eye, and you have 20-20 vision. So in the perfect context of like being out in the middle of nowhere, no light pollution, no moon, no other lights around, the most stars that you could possibly count, the upper end with 2020 vision is 6,000 stars, which begs the question, if you just want to spend one day per star that you counted, that adds up to 16 years, five months, and 7.917 days. Why do you only want to spend 16 more years with me when, say, the average life expectancy of a male is 75.6 years as American, and you're 23 and a half years old now, so wouldn't you want to live another at least 52.1 years with me? Shouldn't you have said that you wanted to spend three days, uh, 3.25 days with me for every star that you counted? It's like, what? You'd be like, what's wrong with this girl? What, do you have any clue of what's going on? Like, this isn't meant to be literal like just stop it just shut up and let me propose and i think and so that analogy i think sometimes we with our historical scientific literal mindsets we we look at this book and we just begin to throw all our stuff onto it when it's like man dude lighten up god god is here it says in the beginning god created the heavens and the, and the earth, and it's this beautiful, beautiful uh, he, Hebrew poem, Bereshit bara Elohim et amain ba'in aharet. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it's how he is holy, and how he is God, and we are not, and, and how the, the whole story goes that, that he created us, and, and we're just created on the sixth day, but we're given this image of himself, and we're said, he says, you can do anything you want, Just don't eat from the tree. And an idiot cannot eat from a tree. But we, like idiots, eat from a tree. We mess it all up and we continue to sin. And our own lives are filled with sin. And yet, this God creator who in the beginning just created the heavens and the earth, who just said, and then there was, this all-powerful God that created everything we see, just said, and then there was. And, and, And we messed it all up, but then he came and redeemed us. And it was like, why is this all-powerful God redeeming us. And this awesome story begins with some of the most beautiful words that can begin a story of an all-surpassing God creating and then, and then we messing it up. And then the story down the line is that he, of course, comes to this earth to die, to suffer for us. And he says he's coming back for us. And it's like, what an awesome, awesome poem. What an awesome way of beginning this entire book. And I just think it's so I don't know if silly is the right word, but when we throw all our science and 
modern baggage onto this text. It's like, dude, you know, just read it. It's, it's, read it for what it is. And it's this beautiful story of how God is God, how we're not, how we messed it all up, but how he redeemed us. And, and just, just back, and so I end this whole month with this idea that, you know, maybe what we've studied and, and brought up debate and brought up different viewpoints is all, you know, in some ways it's, it's good and it's fun to think about these things, but in some ways it's maybe just throwing this context of science and, and modern literal mentality that we have onto a book that was never meant to be read that way. So with, with that, I get that, that big picture, let's close in prayer. And God, we do worship you as, as all-surpassing, all-knowing, all-powerful God that you did create that ultimately all of this, that we are because of you, that you just said and then it was. And so God, we worship you as, as your creation. We worship you, creator God. We love you. We praise you. We love you so much, God. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to my rants. Um, see you next week. We'll talk about Jesus. That'll be fun.